The following audio is from Gold Country Baptist Church in Shingle Springs, California. Visit gcb.church to find more resources and to learn about our church. Well, our, our VBS subtitle this year is Standing Strong in the Battle for Truth. And I, I love the the set that is behind me here, and the visuals that are going to help us in that and help us this week. I was thinking of Nehemiah 8, where Israel, as they were thinking about the future, there was fear, and they were thinking about their families, there was fear, and this is God's word for fathers on that day in Nehemiah 8, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and Fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your families. That's Nehemiah 8. But we need to also remember the Lord in our families and in the fights that we face as well. And fathers have an important role to play in leading the way. We we just sang, I love that song, Give Us Homes with Godly Fathers, Mothers, where the Bible's read, precious hymns are still sung. Give us homes that are built firm upon the Savior and Christ sufficient for old and young. Uh, On that theme today, and as we're thinking about old and young serving together as VBS this week, I have a a message to help set up our week. As, As servants have set up things, as you can see, and as things are getting set for the kids, I think it's good for us to set our thoughts on this theme. The keepers of the kingdom is is the VBS theme, and we need to keep seeking first His kingdom. We need to be praying this week, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth and in this church. Last two messages in Exodus, we've seen the call of the kingdom for a kingdom of priests for Israel and us, and we've seen in Exodus that God is the one who fights the battles for His people. God is the one who is our victory banner that we need to keep looking to, and so we're going to return to Exodus next week, but I would ask you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6 to set up this week ahead at VBS, where we'll be learning about the kingdom conflict and what it means to be soldiers of the king. Ephesians 6 verse 4 says, tells fathers to not exasperate their children, but to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And On this Father's Day, I thought it would be good to be reminded of that, but also be reminded of the challenge to that later in chapter 6, because there are many who grow up in Christian homes that then go AWOL from the faith of their fathers. There's families here affected by that, and it is grievous to your soul. There's spiritual warfare going on against a father's instruction and against the family truths that were prayed about earlier. And verse 12 tells us it's not a battle against flesh and blood. It's not a battle against other people. There are spiritual powers of darkness at work in our culture and in our homes. There's an invisible battle for hearts and minds of children and adults that we need to reckon with. And if you look at Ephesians 6 verse 13, it says, Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm. If we're going to stand firm, if we're not going to give in to the enemy, we need 
a strength. We need reinforcements outside of ourselves, and that's what this passage talks about. In World War II, Winston Churchill rallied England with these words, Never give in, never, 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 never in nothing great or small, large or petty, never give in, never yield to the apparently overwhelming might of the enemy. Paul in Ephesians 6, that's basically the message that he's going to apply, that we're going to be learning about. We've, we've been learning about this in some way in the last few weeks. This next week here, in this room here, we're going to be learning about this during the week, about the armor of God that withstands temptation. And verses 14 through 17 are the memory verses that children are, be, are learning. And I would encourage all of you to be learning, working on memorizing These verses this week, verses 14 through 17, there's going to be crafts that will be brought home. There will be skits about this. These are timely truths for all of us. So let me read that passage, Ephesians 6, 14. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. This is the Word of God to us. This is our battle gear for every day for us. Steve Lawson impressed these truths on me years ago. With these words in his book, Faith Under Fire, Christian life is a war. It's not a playground for children. It is a battleground for soldiers. And this battle is relentless. It's ruthless. There is no escaping from this war. We can't run from it. We can't hide from it. And there is no neutral ground. There's no truce that can be called. There's no ceasefire that can be negotiated. There's no peace treaty that will be signed. There is no white flag being waved. There is no demilitarized zone to enter. There are no conscientious objectors to this war. There are no spiritual pacifists who can sit this one out. There are no draft dodgers who can protest and escape active duty. There's no medical deferments given. Every believer is enlisted into active duty And all of us are going to be on the front lines. We must stand firm or we will be defeated and ineffective in our Christian lives. And he says this, too many Christians live as if there is no war. Close quote. This passage is a call to stand up for Jesus as soldiers of the cross. And we need to put on the gospel armor. And so for our outline Here today, I want us just to consider walking through the passage how we need to put on the belt and the breastplate, how we need to put on the shoes and the shield, how we need to take up our salvation and sword. And and all of these, there's, if you have the the helper's guide for VBS, there's devotionals that'll develop these. And then, number four, to take everything to your captain. In verse 18, put on the belt and breastplate is where we begin in verse 14. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate 
of righteousness. So first thing we need to put on is the belt of truth. We say today, fasten your safety belt. Well, this belt for a soldier was fastened for safety. It was life and death to be fastened on. And we need to remember the context is Paul is writing in prison. He's chained to a Roman soldier. And they would take turns who would come and they would guard him. They would chain to them and they'd be wearing their armor. But when they were sitting next to him, they would be taking off their armor. Then they would be going back out and putting on their armor. And so Paul, as he's writing this letter in that context, has this visual before him. And he also has a captive audience there to to talk about each part of the armor and talk about spiritual truths. And the Spirit of God is, is bringing this metaphor to him for us as he would see as the soldiers are going out there, they're putting on their armor as they go back outside because outside those safety of those walls, they don't know what's going to come against them. And in the context of the book that Paul has been writing, truth is essential to keep us in the battle and to keep us even from being blown around in chapter 4 as he's been talking about that. And one of the things that is helpful to know in New Testament times they would typically, in the Roman culture, wear these long flowing robes, also in the Middle Eastern culture as well. But a soldier for battle could not have those everyday robes. If you were to run with those long robes, you would be tripped up, you would fall, you were not ready for battle. You needed to gird up your loins and, and put a, a belt over it to prepare for action, to keep from just flapping in the wind, to keep from tripping So a soldier here putting on a belt, he is getting ready for action. He knows it can come at any time. And he's also protecting the the center of his body down to his thighs. We need strength in our core. People even say today, and and the Romans understood that. And also in the biblical language, the, the whole midsection and the bowels in particular often relate to our emotions and our feelings. Even today we say we have a, when we're, where we have this intuition or this thought, we say, I have a gut, what, feeling, or, or when you're really nervous, you say, I have butterflies, where, in my stomach. I remember being told, if you've got butterflies in your stomach, try to at least get them to fly in formation, you know, so that you're, you're not just overwhelmed by that. But we have these anxious thoughts, and we use these metaphors, but God's Word is saying, we need to gird up our thinking. We need to gird up our our feeling we need to guard our emotions by the truth that's what gives us stability we're not to live by our our feelings and we're actually vulnerable to attack when we're not strapped securely with truth in the middle of who we are and in the core of of who we are other verses say things like, gird up your loins like a, a man, or it's translated, prepare for action, dress for action like a man. You can think of baseball catchers who wear pads or, or weightlifters, a little bit different metaphor, who, who sometimes you'll see them lifting heavy weight and they have this belt so it'll support their back and give them strength as they're doing an incredible load that they're bearing. Or, or some of you are into rock climbing. And, and you know how important, if you're repelling it is, for you to have your belt securely fastened. Or even if you're down there off Highway 50 at that rock climbing place and you're just learning to go up a little bit, you, you want to make sure that carabiner is securely fastened 
to secure you while you're going up or serious injury can happen, even much more so with, with bungee jumping, right? You've you got to make sure, or you've got this parachute that you're going to jump out. You want to make sure that parachute is belted on and strapped on properly because it's dangerous and deadly and it is spiritually dangerous and deadly if God's truth is not central to the core of who we are, if it's not surrounding us and supporting us in our life. And so it starts with put on the belt of truth. We need God's truth. It needs to be a part of us. We need to be taking it in. It needs to be central to us every day before we go out to face the world. And then connected to it and coming up from the belt, verse 14 adds... The breastplate, put on the breastplate of righteousness. And, and the breastplate is, is an image that we can all understand. It, it protected the abdomen. We think of today a, a bulletproof vest or, or Kevlar body armor. But whatever you have, it doesn't do you any good if you have it but you don't wear it. If you own it but you just leave it at at home, and it's not something you actually put on. So Paul says, put it on. There's Christians who can be too lazy, or they can think, I just don't have time really to, to put it on in the morning or, or before I go out, and, and, and they're not really honestly expecting to be in a shootout that day anyways. But Paul tells us in verse 12, there are invisible spiritual forces that are aiming at you. It's like they're spiritual snipers and they are, they are aiming at your heart as you go out there. You don't see them. It's not, they're not flesh and blood. If you saw a flesh and blood enemy, you'd, you'd go into a defensive mode, but the problem with this enemy is you, you can't see it. The ancient writer Polybius said the Roman bless, breastplate was known as a heart protector. And it, of course, protected all the major organs in this area, the lungs as well. Any, any piercing to any of those vital organs would be the end. But with this breastplate on, it was said that if you shot an arrow at, at 20 paces, so about partway up this auditorium, pretty short range, to shoot an arrow, if it would hit this breastplate, the Roman breastplate, it would just bounce off with just a light scratch. That was the protection it provided. But we have statements like this in Scripture also. Above all else, guard your heart, Proverbs 4.23. Because it's the, the wellspring of life. We need to guard our heart above all else. We need to guard our heart. And Philippians 4 verse 7 says, as we, if we struggle with anxiety, as we present our request to the Lord with thanksgiving, there can be this peace of God that, that surpasses all human understanding that can actually guard what? Guard our hearts in our minds in Christ Jesus. We need that peace, but it comes with thankfulness. It comes with prayer as well as from God's Word. But this breastplate of righteousness that protects us isn't self-righteousness. It can't be that in Scripture. Isaiah was read earlier, and that's part of where this image comes from, that Paul's thinking of this language here. And, And Isaiah makes clear in that context that all of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. You don't bring filthy rags into a fight. 
But then he talks about a righteousness from God that is imputed to sinners to justify them, to declare them righteous, so that God sees the sinner who's trusted in Christ as righteous now. That's where and how we stand in Christ. We're clothed in his righteousness. So that's what Isaiah has has already revealed in that context Paul's quoting from, that the righteousness of God in the gospel clothes us and it covers us so that our hearts are secure in him. But Paul also is very well aware of that. He talks about it in Romans, but he also talks about this concept of putting on, putting off and putting on. You're putting off the old life of sin, the old garments, and you need to be putting on daily righteousness. And so imputation also has an application. We need to be living in light of who we are and who God has made us to be. And just look back at chapter 4, verse 24, where Paul has talked about putting off. And then chapter 4, verse 24, put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So, so God has created this. We don't create this, but we have a responsibility to put on true righteousness, not self-righteousness, but as new people, we can put on true righteousness because Paul calls us to. And so what does that look like in chapter 4? We'll just go a couple verses to verse 26. Don't sin in your anger and resolve it, deal with it before the sun goes down, before the day ends. If you don't, verse 27 says, That's how you give an opportunity to the devil. So when you think about spiritual warfare, it's as everyday as your angry thoughts. That person you live with, who you've gotten angry with, who you're struggling with, those you work with, those who are in your family, that you become angry. And what are you going to do with that anger before the sun goes down is spiritual warfare. You're actually giving an opportunity and a place and potentially a foothold to the devil when you are going to bed angry, not dealing with anger, letting bitterness, the root of bitterness, grow. Or in verse 29, when you use words that don't edify or don't give grace, he's talking about how do we put on righteousness. It's, it has to do with what's going on inside, but also what comes out of our mouth. This is where the battle is fought. Are we going to speak in unwholesome and unhelpful ways? Throw some of those darts out there at others? Or are we going to seek to give grace to, in what we say? See, this is how we protect our hearts. It's with righteous actions and righteous attitudes that you put on. And if you're even convicted right now of how you haven't been doing that, make that right today before the sun goes down. Seek to make that right so that you're not giving any inch, any place to the evil one. So put on the belt and the breastplate. And then number two, put on the shoes and the shield. So he's going to move now to the the shoes and the shield. Verse 15, and as shoes... For your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. And let's start with the shoes. These are not running shoes of the ancient Olympic 
games. These are Roman soldiers' shoes for battle. These are the kind of shoes that, that were also essential for warfare. They, they were part sandal, part high top, we might say. They, they sometimes had shin guards, or they were, the shoe itself was shod, your Bible might say, or, or laced up. And they would keep the ankle from twisting. And so just to have some visuals of what that looked like, you, you would tighten them with leather straps for stability. They would give readiness for combat. This is all part of the image. It's, it's preparation, some of your translations say. It, you're unprepared if you have your shoe untied, if it's not fully put on. You're not ready to engage if your shoes are, are loose or not the right kind of shoes. And before the time of Paul, shoes had actually helped. The right kind of shoes helped the victories of, of names you would recognize. Julius Caesar, Alexander the Great. It was said in part some of their victories were because of the shoes they had designed for their soldiers. And archaeology, as they've looked at these shoes of this era, they had spikes kind of like cleats today. Those weren't invented in, in more modern times. Those were, those were being used in the era that Paul is writing from. And so different versions of that are used even today. So football players on the scrimmage line, they need to have good shoes so they don't just get driven back. Or rugby players, when they're in a scrum, need to have good shoes that they all kind of put their heads together and push against each other. Or, or probably more common for some of you is is doing a rope and tug-of-war. How many of you have done tug-of-war before? I know some of you have done it here on, in the fellowship hall through the years, and, and you get down there, and there's different techniques, but you want to... Having good shoes is, is important. If you've got your dress shoes and you're out there, you're just sliding. doesn't matter how strong you are. If you don't have good traction, you're just sliding across the fellowship hall floor. A shoe without traction in the mud in battle would just be a, a very deadly version of slip and slide. It would be devastating if you could not stand and slip. And so the Romans designed shoes with these hobnail spikes. And, and why they had that is so they could just dig their feet and get, it, get in a position, dig in their feet into the ground so they could stand firm. As the enemy was coming, they would dig in and stand. And what Paul's calling them here to do with this image of shoes is not run forward, but, but, but dig in, stand firm. He's, he's said three times already, stand firm, stand firm, stand firm, verses 10 through 13. And Josephus called these shoes they would wear. He was a first century um, Jewish writer. Writing at this time says they were shoes thickly studded with sharp nails. And Paul uses this image to say we need to dig in to the gospel. That's the foundation. That's what needs to grip us. We need to have a good grip and, and foothold in the gospel. Or we're just going to get pushed all around. Some of the other versions say the gospel of peace gives a firm footing or, or a firm-footed stability. That's the idea. This is what gives us stability, to have the right kind of shoes. And so what does that look like? I think Paul helps us in some other passages. Colossians 1.23, he says we need to be firmly grounded, stable, and not shifting from the hope of the gospel. So we need to not shift our weight 
from the gospel to something else. Okay, I'm standing here for the gospel that got me saved, but now it's about other things. No, it's always about the gospel. We always need to stand in the gospel. Believers need the gospel every day. We're not to move away from or move on from the gospel like we just needed that early in our Christian life. This is what the veteran soldier needs to stand firm, the gospel. It's the stable, solid ground to stand on. Everything else is sinking sand apart from Christ, the solid rocker. Here's another one, Philippians 1.27. Paul says, we need to live worthy of the gospel, standing firm, and he says, contending side by side for the faith of the gospel. So as we stand, we need to recognize others that we stand with who believe in that same gospel, that we would be worthy of it, and that we would stand firm together, side by side, for the faith of the gospel. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says, I would want to remind you, brothers, of the gospel. And then he tells them to, that in, in this we stand, on which you have taken your stand. And at the end of that chapter, he says, thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. He gives us the victory, but we need to stand firm in that victory. Don't be moved by anything else. Paul is saying, don't move away from the gospel. We need to go deeper into the gospel. Understand more the the doctrines of the gospel and grace and stand in grace and stand side by side with other gospel believers. They're not the enemy. Other gospel believers are the ones contending with us for the enemies. Even if we see things differently, we need to stand together in the gospel in what matters. And we need to rehearse the gospel to ourselves daily. We need to root ourselves in the gospel deeply. We need to keep ourselves grounded in the gospel's foundation. What are some of the reminders of the gospel that we need? I need to remind myself, I am a great sinner apart from God, but Jesus is a great Savior. I need to remember it's only by the grace of God that I am what I am. I need to remember that I stand in grace. That's what gives me strength. And then verse 16 goes on to say, In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, or the flaming darts, or or that you can quench the fiery arrows. These fiery arrows were used in the Roman era. They would have these these arrows that, that had flammable tips that they could light and ignite, and they would shoot them at their enemy, and then when it would hit them, it would splatter, and there would be damage all around if someone did not have the right kind of shield. In the year, the century before Paul's writing, 31 B.C., Octavius used fire arrows to defeat the army of Mark Anthony and Cleopatra. This was an important part of that in their naval fleet, or in the film Gladiator, there's the opening scene, there's, they're, they're igniting arrows and they're lighting them up and then shooting. That, that's the century after Paul wrote Emperor Aurelius around 180-something A.D. But they would shoot these fiery arrows at their enemies, the Roman soldiers would. They would ignite them, they would light them, and then they would shoot them, and they would go 
flying out there. And if you saw these fiery, flaming arrows coming at you, it would be a, a terrifying thing unless you had a good shield that you could take cover under. And the kind of shield here isn't like a medieval jousting shield. You guys have seen those when they ride the horses. they got this little round shield they strap on their arm, and then they've got the, the jousting pole and, or whatever it's called in the other hand. This is not that one-arm shield. Some of you young kids think of a, a Captain America shield, but this is, that's not going to be enough for this fight. There's got to be a, think of more like a blast shield, or, or think of police when you've seen them in, in riot gear. They have bigger shields, and there's a reason for that, because there's all kinds of burning projectiles that are being thrown at the, the, those who are protecting and serving, and they need something to protect and serve them this kind of shield, a shield that's almost as tall as you, a shield that if you need to, you can actually duck down and get behind and it actually covers your entire body. This is the shield that he's talking about. Think of a body shield. And what protects the believer is faith in our shield and defender, the ancient of Days And we need to remember, and I think this picture of how they would gather in those moments reminds us that we are an army, we're not solo soldiers. If you were by yourself, having the shield would be helpful, but when you gather with others in your local regiment, there is a protection as you, as you gather together, as you have faith together, and you stay together as the enemies are coming at you. You stand together and stay together in the fight. In the Lord's army, there's not solo Christians on solo missions. He designs us to need each other. We need the church. With the local church, there is protection on all sides. We watch out for each other in the battle. And we have this shield. That it's, it's even curved to, to, to wrap around the, the soldier. And here's what Charles Spurgeon said. Faith envelops the entire man, and it protects him from all missiles wherever they may be aimed against him. Although Satan will certainly attack him in every direction, yet let him come. All must be shielded and secured by God's all-covering, all-protecting, all-triumphant shield of faith. Pastor Corey's been in First Peter 1, where it talks about, one of the versions says that believers are shielded by God's power, through faith, we're protected, we're shielded, we're guarded. Some of the Psalms say things like this, Thou, O Lord, art a shield about me. You're the, you're the one, it's your glory that helps me to lift my head. You are my hiding place. You are my shield. Protect me, O sovereign Lord. My strong deliverer who shields my head in the day of battle. That's what the Lord is. He protects our head in the day of battle as we hold up that shield. And Psalm 91 says, When faith takes cover under the shadow of the Almighty, it says this, His truth shall be your shield, so that you will not be afraid of, and it lists several things. One of those is the arrow that flies by day. When the Almighty is your shield, you're not fearing that, that arrow that flies by day. Another psalm says, God has broken the fiery arrows of the enemy. 
Paul's using that image from the Old Testament to talk about how God can break the power of sin and temptation. He can shield us from that by faith. Some of the armies learned with their their leather shields how to wet them so that they they would actually extinguish the flames when they would land on them. It, It made them heavier, but it would help put the flames out or the Probably the the more common shielding was a fireproof material, metal shielding, like you see there. It's the kind of shielding that can just deflect those darts of doubt or discouragement. That's what faith in God's promises can do. It can help to to just block off the, the doubt and discouragement that comes flying at us. We don't even know where it comes from. Faith in His warnings can can help shield us from fear or from the Flaming lust, as Proverbs describes it, is a fire that burns like hell. Faith in a big God can help extinguish the arrows of anxiety or or apathy. If you have a big God, you have a big shield for anything that comes your way. And even when you don't know the future, you know He's with you. You can hold on to Him and He will protect you. Burning anger is what gives the Satan ground that we saw earlier, but faith in a forgiving God can help put that out. Even as it lands on us, we can deal with it and not let that continue into the next day. Here's what Paul said about forgiveness in 2 Corinthians 2.11. I have forgiven him lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. And he's urging them to forgive someone who had repented, who had even done serious sin among the bodies. He says, forgive them. Paul says, I've forgiven him so that Satan would not take advantage of us. When you don't forgive, when you hold things against other believers in particular in the body, there is, Satan is taking advantage of that. And Paul says, we're not ignorant of his devices. There's a wonderful book by Thomas Brooks, Puritan writer, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. He gets that from this text here. Satan has common devices, but there's remedies for each of them in God's Word. That would be a great book to read more about remedies for his devices. But one of his devices and schemes in this context is to divide us. To divide us and to not let us stand under that shield of faith united like that, but to make us turn on each other to make us fight each other, to to jostle with each other. And then we turn against each other and we start fighting, quarreling with the other person. When there's a great enemy facing us and we're now expending our, our energy on this person next to us who's actually on the same side. And you hear of friendly fire where you're taking shots at your own, maybe even unintentionally, but that can be intentional even. We need to not be unaware of this device. To, to throw darts at us, and, and, and we, we think this person next to us threw that dart or, or meant to throw that dart, and so now we turn against them, we start throwing our verbal darts back at them, and that dart might have even just come from somewhere else, but we thought it was that guy. Satan convinces us that our, our struggle is actually with that flesh and blood person. He wants us to think that's the issue, that person, that's, that's what we're thinking about, the, the person, but it is not a battle against flesh and blood. Whether they're a believer or not, it's not ultimately that. It's what's going on inside you 
but the battle is fought and lost. And like Roman soldiers, when we can stay united, there is strength in those numbers. But when we are divided, we can fall to the enemy. And so when the onward Christian soldiers part is together, when they would advance with their shields, they would, they would have shields over them and in front of them, and they would advance together. That was where their strength was. And it's a reminder that we need the church. We need each other. We need to have each other's backs. We need to care for our fellow soldiers. And I'm thankful that there's a lot of that happening here, but we need to realize even when good things are happening, the enemy wants to disrupt that and destroy that in our families, in our church family. So we need that shield of faith together. And then thirdly, Paul keeps going, take up your salvation and sword. Verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. He says, take or take up. This is not the verb put on from earlier. This is a a different verb now, to take up. He's been talking about what you wear, but now he's going to talk about what you wield. And salvation isn't something I put on myself. God does that, but, but we're being called to take up thoughts of salvation. We need to protect our thinking. We see people wear helmets today for protection in all kinds of contact sports. You see people riding bikes or you see workers wearing hard hats and, and there's a reason for that. And in battle, a, helmet's, a helmet for a soldier was, was his salvation in combat. It would, keep, it would deliver him from, from death. Here's what John Stott said about the helmet. In those days, nothing short of an axe or hammer could pierce a heavy helmet. And in some cases, a hinged visor added formal protection. So some of these helmets, even being struck with a a sword or an arrow or a a javelin, couldn't pierce some of these. Only an axe or a a heavy hammer could could pierce it. And and sometimes they would bring that visor down for, for further protection. And the medieval knights developed helmets further. So we'll be seeing more of, the, of that imagery here in, in VBS. But the, when you think of the helmet of salvation, it's for the battle of the mind. And here's what the VBS Helper's Handbook says. This, the, the helmet guards what we put into our mind. We need to guard. We need to take up this responsibility to guard what we put into our mind. Mind, what we see, what we listen to, things we watch on TV or on a small screen, things that we read in books or online, things that we hear from our friends, all of it needs to be protected by what our Savior says and, and filtered by that. Things we learn from others, from friends or from teachers. The Bible talks about taking every thought captive. To make it obedient to Christ. Christ who is our salvation. We have this responsibility to protect ourselves. Protect ourselves or we will fall to the enemy's weapon in our thinking. And so to take up the helmet of salvation, I think there's a couple things we need to remember. First of all, remember your Savior is greater than your enemy. 
Our enemy is not to be underestimated. But we also need to not overlook the, the one who is greater than our enemy. Ephesians chapter 1 talks about how Christ, since he's died and then risen and been exalted, he is now far above all rulers and authorities and principalities, all those spiritual forces he talks about in chapter 6. He says in chapter 1, Christ has defeated them and he's far above them. It's not a competition like they're, who's going to win in the end. He's already defeated them. He's far above them, and it's through him that we can, have, we can join him in that victory that he already won at the cross. But we need to remember he's greater than our enemy. 1 John 4, verse 4 says, Greater is he who is in you than he who is, what? In the world. We need to remember that. There's, through Christ, through his Spirit, greater is he who's in us than anything we face in the world. We need to remember that. Or here's how David, who knew a lot about warfare, here's how he put on the helmet of salvation. Psalm 140, verse 7. My Lord, the strength of my salvation, you have covered my head in the day of battle. He says, God, you're the one, my salvation, who protects, covers my head in battle. And he's not just talking about physical battles there. David experience God through reminding himself of salvation and how he gave him victory in the battle of his mind, which so many of his psalms wrestle with, his thinking, bringing it back to God. So your, your Savior is greater than your enemy, and your salvation gives grace for your enemy within. That's what we saw earlier in Ephesians 4, that that battle, we're being strengthened by the renewal of our mind as we put off and then put on. That's where that renewal needs to take place in our mind. And it, it, it has to do with dealing with our sin. We saw that earlier. James chapter 4 talks about what's the source of your battle, your warfare. He says, is it not those desires, your desires? That's actually what's waging war inside of you. It's not that other person that's causing the fight. It's what's going on inside you. Those desires that have become inordinate and too strong where you're not getting what you want and so you fight and quarrel. That's what leads people even to kill or to covet. Either way, it's the same thing. It's those passions, those desires of what you want when you're not getting what you want. But there's grace for that as he goes on to say, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble so humble yourself, therefore, under his mighty hand. Resist the devil, James 4 says, and he will flee. When you're humble, when you resist him in that way, when you seek grace from the Lord, there is victory. But we need to reckon with this. Here's what Psalm 13:2 says. I wrestle with my thoughts. Any of you ever been there? You're wrestling with your thoughts. What do we do? Or every day have sorrow in my heart. What do you do when you, there's just a sorrow that just won't lift? A, a darkness or a discouragement or a depression or a, a grief that's just there every day and you're just wrestling with your thoughts and those thoughts keep coming back. And it seems like sometimes these thoughts are just flying at you. Where are they coming from? I wrestle with them. Every day I have sorrow in my heart. How long will my enemy triumph. Here's the answer. Verse 5 of Psalm 13. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart will rejoice 
in your salvation. I will sing, he says. We can look at a lot of psalms like that where they say, I'm going to rejoice in salvation. I don't know about the situation, but I can rejoice in salvation. I can sing. I can say to myself, why are you in despair, O my soul? Hope in God. He is my strength and my salvation and my God. We can keep preaching the truth of salvation and the gospel to ourselves. Even as we go up and down, like Psalm 42 and Psalm 46, going through the cycle, but he keeps grabbing hold of his thoughts, grabbing hold of his soul and saying, why are you in despair, O my soul? Hope in God, trust him, praise him. Take up your salvation and then take up your sword. End of Ephesians six seventeen, And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Everything else has been defensive armor up until now. Everything else is to be defending against the enemy coming at you. But now there is a weapon. There is a weapon that the believer has. And it is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. This is our weapon. There's many swords we could look at through history. There's many special swords in, in other writings you could think of. The sword and the stone. King Arthur's Excalibur. Peter Pevensey's sword. Rindon used to fight against the white witch. Aragorn's sword. Anduril from the king or the famous sword of Ali, Zulfikar. Or maybe for a younger generation, you can think of special swords from a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Some of you don't know what that means. That's all right. But better than any fantasy, better than any legend, better than any story of epic swords through all the years is the true and the greatest sword that every believer has. You have this sword. You have the Word of God. It's a, it's a weapon that can cut through all the lies of the evil one. And it's a weapon that can actually put to death sin. Paul talks about that in Romans 8. We can actually mortify or put to death sin through the Spirit through the Scripture, and this is the sword of the Scripture. This is how the Spirit comes together with His Scripture, and He can help us to mortify, to actually get victory and to, to put to death a particular sin in our life, to cut through all of those lies, all those things that keep coming at us. We can cut through and slice through and actually see the truth through the sword of Scripture. And this particular sword, this word that Paul uses was the sword that was used to, to precisely, this wasn't like this big, great, big, long sword that was hard to wield. This was the, the sword that they would use in battle to precisely counter the attacks of the enemy, to block the enemy's blows, to drive the enemy back. This was the sword they would use. This is the, the word gladiators comes from this, the gladius. This was the, when there were duels of sword fighters, this was the, the sword they would use. You're going to see some teenagers doing sword fights here on stage if you're here this week but we need to think of and, and the, that story is to make us think of a, a, a greater more spiritual sword fight that we're to be a part of and it's God's word that can actually fight and defeat and drive back Satan I don't know if you've read Pilgrim's Progress if you haven't it's a, a great book to read but there's a scene there where 
Christian is being knocked down in Apollyon. This, uh, see this dragon behind me? He, it's, this dragon's smiling, but Apollyon was not smiling. He's trying to destroy Christian. Christian is knocked down, but he grabs the sword. And Christian quotes scripture, and he drives back, and he inflicts a wound on Apollyon, which represents Satan. That's one of his names in scripture, Apollyon, the destroyer. And he drives him back. He, he wounds him, and the The devil there, the dragon, flees, screeching as he has to flee as the sword of the Scripture is used in that way. But a soldier had to know his sword. He had to know how to use his sword. He had to practice using his sword. He had to regularly handle it if he was going to be able to handle an enemy And what we're being called to do is we need to take up this book. We need to regularly handle this book. We need to practice what we see in this book. We need to have a good grip on it so it's not knocked out of our hand. We need to, first of all, have it in our hand. Take it up. We need to read it. We need to memorize it. There's a reason the the Bible memory program Fighter Verses is called Fighter Verses because it understands this principle is we need Scripture in our heart that we might not sin against God, as the psalm says. It's, it's Scripture. It's the sword of the Spirit that helps us in that fight. So we need to daily handle it, put it into practice. We all need a better grasp of the fight. We need to keep sharp. All the rest of the armor keeps us alive, but the sword actually can drive back. It can specifically counterattack. Here's a key cross-reference. Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's sharper than any samurai blade. It's sharper than any sword or surgeon's scalpel. It can get in where no blade can go to the soul and spirit, the very thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's what God's word can do. It can cut through any fog. It can cut through any facade, and it is sharp enough to actually cut down temptation and sin at the root, and not just at the fruit, it can get to the root of it. And here's what Steve Lawson again said, he he was preaching to preachers, he says, unsheath the sword, no battle was ever won while the sword remained in its scabbard, take this book, study it, and proclaim it, never be unarmed, he said. Put down all other blades. They are all dull and blunt. Too many ministers, he says, are attempting open heart surgery with a butter knife. They've taken up inferior weapons of pop psychology, of self-image improvement, of church growth strategies, of corporate leadership principles. Put down all those plastic utensils and take up the two-edged sword of the Word of God. We need to wield this confidently. We need to thrust with it. We need to let it cut. Let it cut both ways. Let it cut us and heal us. Let it penetrate. We need to keep our sword sharp and ready. Soldiers of Christ, arise. Put your armor on strong in the strength which God supplies through his eternal son. Attend with constant care in your captain's sight and watching unto prayer, which takes us to number four. Take everything to your captain 
Verse 18, have we trials or temptations? Take it to your Lord, your captain, in prayer. That's what verse 18 is, is saying at all times. We're to take all things in prayer to our commanding officer in the spirit, not relying on our flesh. We need to keep bringing supplications to him. John Piper calls prayer a wartime walkie-talkie. That's a good image. It's a wartime. We're in war. This is our walkie-talkie where we're constantly in communication. We need reinforcements. We need backup. We're getting ready to go into this situation, asking God for help, but also applying that again to the church. We need to let other believers know. We need to be reaching out to them when we're going into difficult situations where we need that prayer as well because sometimes our prayers are weak. We need others alongside of us. But this passage ends where it starts in verse 10. We're only going to be able to be strong in the Lord, in the strength of his might. Even the Lord Jesus modeled this in Gethsemane. Praying in in the Spirit for strength. And the context of this book, I think, calls us to interpret each piece of the armor in a Christ-centered way. Romans 13 says, Put on the armor of light. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh. Don't surrender to the flesh. Don't give it any quarter. To put on the Lord's armor is to put on the Lord himself. And, and actually in Isaiah it talks about he puts on the Messiah. Christ would be putting on truth like a breastplate, faithfulness around him like a sash. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So we're really putting on him who is the truth. He's the one who needs to undergird and support us. We need to fasten to him in faith, belt to him like a parachute putting on the Lord Jesus Christ in repentant trust as our only hope to be united with him, the one who died and rose to heaven. In Isaiah fifty nine seventeen, prophesied Jesus, put on righteousness as a breastplate. This is what Ron read earlier. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. So he puts it on first and for us. It's his armor that he's sharing with us. And Isaiah also talked about preparation for the gospel of peace, feet that would announce good news. And we can't fill those shoes that Jesus filled, but we can stand in him secure. We can stand in him and speak his gospel. We can be that army bold whose battle cry is love, reaching out to those in darkness. And Isaiah also prophesied the Lord Almighty will shield his people. He'll deliver them. Isaiah even prophesied that last piece. Jesus said, my words are as sharp as a sword. And when John sees Jesus in Revelation at the end of the Bible, he sees the Son of Man girded with gold. And as he speaks, he sees this, from his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword. From his mouth comes this sword which can strike down or that will strike down the nation's And he says in Revelation, repent. If not, I will come soon to you and war with the sword of my mouth. That's the sword that's coming. But as that word of Christ goes forth, we see in the Gospels that sword can also pierce hearts. So they repent. In Acts 2, it says they were pierced in their hearts. said, what must we do? And they repented. And Christ shows us how to take up that sword in temptation. Remember in the wilderness, he's led by the Spirit. He's being tempted three times. He, he says, it is written. Basically, he's, he's holding up that sword on this angle, on this angle, and this angle. It's, it's written. This is what the Scripture says. 
And if Christ, the God-man himself, took up the word as his only weapon, who are we to think we can win any battle with anything else? But with him, if we're in it, if it's, if it's in us, his word, in Christ, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us so. And so as we come to VBS, the kids and the crafts and this wonderful set here, let's above all look to Christ. Let's pray for those who don't know Christ to look to Christ. Let's pray for even those serving to look to him in a new and fresh way and parents. And I want to end the way Charles Spurgeon ended what would be his last sermon in the year 1891. Christ is the most magnanimous of captains. There never was his like among the choices of princes. He is always to be found in the thickest part of the battle. But he says his service is life and joy and peace. Everything that is gracious, generous, kind and tender, lavish and superabundant is in him. He says, oh, that you would enter his service at once. God help you to enlist under the banner of Jesus Christ even this day. Amen. And all God's soldiers said, Amen. Amen. Let me pray. And as we pray, I'm, I'm going to be praying, adapting the words of, of Patrick of Ireland many years ago. Our triune God, we ask for your shield to ward and your heavenly hosts to be our guard. We pray that Christ be with me, Christ within me, Christ behind me, Christ before me. Christ beside me, Christ to win me, Christ to comfort and restore me. We ask these things for the sake of Christ and for the glory of Christ, our captain. Amen.